It's good to be with the family of God this morning. Great to listen to you sing as it always is on this very, well, this very first Sunday of the month of October. We've made it to the fall. And we have had a beautiful stretch of weather here in Middle Tennessee. We were wondering why we lived here in July. <laughs> and then October reminded us, oh, yeah, yeah, this is why we're here. This is why we live in, in Middle Tennessee. If you're visiting with us uh, this morning, we, we're delighted that you're here. I hope I get the chance following today's service to meet you uh, personally and to greet you um, I'll be at the very back of the, 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 the room. You can also, you can squeeze by me if you don't want to say anything to, to me. That's fine, too, so don't, don't feel you're like, oh, i got to go around here to get away from him. But, um, no, you can, you can pop by or you can squeeze by me either way. But just know I'd, I'd love to see you and love to, love to get to know you. You're, you're our guest, and we, we welcome you. And we pray that as we worship, maybe even already in the midst of our singing and the readings and the prayers, you have, you have had your own heart touched, touched with the truth of God's Word, uh, maybe, maybe pinged with some conviction, um, maybe comforted at the assurance of, of pardon. Uh, one thing's for sure, as we approach the sermon text this morning, you will be overwhelmed um, do, you, do you see what's before me this, this morning? Do you see what's before me? You're, you're actually reading this correctly, Exodus 20, 22 through Exodus 22, verse 15. Now, some of you who are maybe visiting with us for the first time you're, this morning, you're like, this was the wrong Sunday. Like, this was the, this was the wrong one. We, we may give them another shot. I'm not sure, but we'll, We'll see. Well, I hope that you'll suffer, suffer us uh, this morning, suffer me this morning. I think the Lord has a rich word from us, uh, for us in Exodus 20 uh, through 22. Um, you will be delighted, however, to know that I am going to take just a selection from, from this passage uh, before you. I'm not going to read. You're having a great time over here. Um, I'm just going to read a selection from this particular text and, and can only, believe it or not, can only focus on a part of it this morning uh, because there's so much in it. But this is a section that if you've been working your way with us through the, the book of Exodus, you've been with us for a while, you know we've just finished in what's called the Ten Commandments. We've just completed the Ten Commandments last week together. We spent a couple of weeks on those. And then now we get to the section known as the 600-plus laws in, in the book of Exodus. It literally is 600-plus laws uh, in, in the book of Exodus, which is the unpacking. I don't want you to think... That, okay, we've left the Ten Commandments and now we're, we're moving on to these really pedantic, detailed uh, laws. We're actually, the way the Bible understands what we're about to read is, is pulling the thread of the Ten Commandments into your real life. That, that's how the Bible understands what we're about to read. And, and the reality is, the, so much of your life and my life is... is cluttered with complexity and decisions, moral decisions that we make day in and day out about what's right or what would be required of me in this circumstance or how should I approach this or that with my, my neighbor. Um, those kinds of things aren't just simply spelled out and we have to very often make judgment calls, don't we? 
on what we understand to be appropriate from the Lord's uh, word. And, and in a civil arena, so part of what's happening here in, in this section is the Lord is constitutionalizing the people of Israel as a nation. So, so you can imagine what it would be like to try to run a nation without any laws. That'd be really tough, wouldn't it? Like, aren't you, aren't you thankful that we've got some, some laws like around automobiles? Like, that's actually, that actually made it safe for you to be here this morning. Uh, you know, and there's, there's laws about what you can and can't do, like, in public spaces. We're grateful for that. Uh, we're really great. Like, those kinds of things, if you don't know them or don't abide by them, they get you in a lot of trouble. Well, the nation of Israel is being constitutionalized here. And not surprisingly, it gets into the muck and the madness of our daily lives. And part of the complexity of these laws actually speaks to a really rich principle about our God that I want you just to lock away right from the very beginning. And that is, our God doesn't just speak to us in generalities. He's really interested in the minutia and the details of your life. He, I mean, he's interested in like whether your beast of burden feeds on the right plot of land or you're actually stealing from your neighbor. Like he really cares if men get in a fist fight and accidentally hit a woman. That's some of the stuff that's here in this text. Like he really cares about that. He has things to say about that that have to do with justice and equity and what is right, what's appropriate. So as we read through these laws, they may feel like a million miles away from where it is that you are, but the fact of the matter is, is they're just driving right up into the middle of your living room. They're, they're right in the area where you're making all kinds of decisions all the time. You know, you could replace some of the scenarios with scenarios of your own, and you'd find that the Ten Commandments apply in very specific lawmaking ways. And so what we're going to try to do is just read a selection of these, and then comment on them. And the one section that I'm really going to spend time on, I'll just give you a heads up, on this is the section on the laws related to slavery. We're going to spend some time on the laws related to slavery. There's actually three different forms of laws that are here. Laws related to slavery, laws related to restitution, how to pay back when you've done wrong, and laws related to private property. And I'll touch on some of those as well as we go through, but we don't have the chance to actually hit all of those laws. I know you're upset about that. But I will do my very best to drill in to the laws on slavery because I think those are laws where you're like, that has nothing to do with me, <laughs> right? And I already have my opinion made up about the Bible and slavery, so this will really kind of mess with your apple cart, right? And so this particular section is really going to help us really think through biblically, how is the Lord approaching this subject? And why is it that he thinks it's important to give us chapters of detailed laws, and the fact is that he loves order, he loves care and protection, he wants the freedom and the joy of his people, and he makes it really clear in the details of our life how he wants us to live and think. And I want you to lock that away as we consider this text together. So we're going to start in verse 22 of Exodus 20. We're going to read through verse 11 of Exodus 21, and then we'll pick up in verse 20 of Exodus 21 and read another little section, and I'll give you a heads up each time we shift. And then I'll bring us home by looking at the property laws at the, at the beginning of chapter 22. All right, so I'll, I'll keep you posted as we read so you can follow along. This is God's word beginning in verse 22. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. 
You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourself gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings, and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Now Exodus 21.1. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl. And he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment or money. Now look to verse 20 of Exodus 21. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, and one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, uh, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. Now, Exodus 22, verse 1. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen or an ox or four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. If a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best of his own field and in his own vineyard. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. And then verse 14. If a man borrows anything of his neighbor and it is injured or dies, the owner, does, uh, owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. But if the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. If it was hired, 
It came for its hiring fee. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do believe that your word is truth. And Jesus, you pray that we would be sanctified in the truth. We come now to this section of your word that we admit are very, very often the unread sections of the Bible, the clean pages of our texts. And yet you have a word very important for us to hear. Would you give us ears to hear right now and hearts receptive to the way in which you would want to lead us? And Lord, would you bed down, even as we talk about a sensitive subject like slavery today, would you bed down maybe particular defenses we might have? Uh, Lord, would you help those in, in here who may struggle even with the teaching of your word in some way and, and be caused in this moment to, to have difficulty trusting you? Lord, would you protect them from that by the Spirit? Would you help them to know that they can trust you? And even in their pain and struggle, there is something here that you would have them to know. And that they can trust your word to always speak the truth. And that you have only good and kind intentions, even when it's hard for us to see it. And even when we very often misunderstand it. On that note, keep us from misunderstanding. Give to us clarity. O oh, Spirit, you're not an author of confusion. You love to bring light to your people. Today, your preacher needs more help than maybe it even seems normal. I would pray, O oh, Holy Spirit, that you'd preach. You'd make it known to the hearts of your people. And that the failings and shortcomings of the communicator would not in any way obscure your word for your people. Come and meet with us. Show your face and be glorified. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I was talking to one of our leaders today. Um, they saw me after the, the first service. It was really difficult. I'll just say, you know, just to help you actually maybe. It was hard. I saw people after the first service, you know, they come by, you know, Pastor, um, Pastor, um, thank you for today's message. You know, they were like not sure how to, how to communicate. You know, they were like, I think I should thank you for today. That just seems like the right thing to do. So I'm, I'm doing it out of duty, but I'm, I'm not really sure how to handle what we just went through, uh, you know, in, in the service. I, you know, don't feel like you need to say anything after the, the service related to the sermon. I'll just go home and question it all afternoon. But uh, one of the things that they, they, they looked at me and they were like, wow, that was a doozy, uh, you know, today. And I was like, yep, we're not done. You know, there's a number, there's a number of other, other chapters here uh, to address all of which are good. You know, we believe that all scripture is inspired by God, right? And that word all, it's a very technical Greek word. It means all, all scripture is inspired by God, is profitable for teaching, for a proof, for correction and for training in righteousness. That all includes Exodus 20 through 22. And it's by no happen chance that you're here today hearing this text. There's something that the Lord really has in store to communicate to each and every one of you. So let's open up our hearts to that and believe that that is true. Uh, one of the things that we need to do as we approach a text like this is uh, define terms a little bit, to be quite honest. Um, we just came out of the Ten Commandments, these, um, these absolute statements from the Lord that are, 
uh, universally um, binding and applicational to every day and time, every person, every being, every cultural and social context. Um, those commands of the ten words are applicable. And we come now to the section in what's called the Book of the Covenant. Notice the title today for the message is the Book of the Covenant. That's what this section is called. It means the, the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant that God is establishing among the people of Israel to form them as a nation. We come now to read their national laws. We come here to look at the constitution and structure, law structure, of uh, the people, people of Israel. And when we look at these laws, what we're looking at are not the absolute statements of the Ten Commandments. We're looking at what we would call, and appropriately so, case law. Okay, we're looking at particular cases. Or we might put it this way, if you've had uh, an ethics course before, you've probably heard of, of situational ethics, right? The idea of what to do in this circumstance as opposed to what to do in that circumstance. Well, in our context today, you can see very clearly we have a variety of situations. And the law of the Ten Commandments is being pulled through and applied in different ways in these variety of situations and dynamics that take place among the people of Israel as a nation. And so the Ten Commandments you'll sometimes hear being described as the moral law, right? It's the law that's applicable everywhere. It's never in any sense rescinded. But the, the two other forms of laws that we see here in the Book of the Covenant are differently understood and applied by the people of Israel and, or excuse me, by the church in the New Testament, different from the nation of Israel. And those two forms of laws the scholars refer to as the ceremonial law and the civil law. The ceremonial law you see right at the beginning of our reading there at Exodus chapter 20, that last section on altars. Remember that section on altars where he's telling you how to build an altar and not to use hewn stones and not to climb up on steps? And we're not going to go into great detail about that, but what he is basically saying is, I don't want you to build an altar like the pagans, and I don't want you to worship like the pagans, which was usually without clothes. So he is, he is doing a very clear demarcation between the people of Israel and pagan idolatry there. But then notice as he moves into chapter 21, what he begins to talk about is the civil life of the nation of Israel. Here's how we are going to adjudicate laws. Here are the precedents. Here are the situations you're going to find yourself in. And here's how they need to be handled. That's the civil law. All right. So notice you have ceremonial and you have civil. Now from where we sit today, the ceremonial law, this would be all the laws associated with how the priest should dress to how the tabernacle should be uh, ordered, to what offerings come when, and whether they're whole burnt or you get to eat some of them, or you know, all of those many laws that we see throughout the first five books of the, the, the Old Testament are ceremonial in nature, they're religious in nature, and they are satisfied and fulfilled in Christ. Those laws do not still remain, in effect, binding for you and me. So when you came this morning, you didn't come with a little pigeon in a cage... The sacrifice on an altar, you didn't come with the grunts of sheep, thank you for not doing that, and bringing them into this space. And where I, get this, the priest would have been responsible to be the butcher, where I'd have to be you know, butchering these things. You do not want me to do that. Um, that would have been the reality in the Old Testament. Okay, That was what would have been happening. Those were the binding ceremonial laws. Jesus is the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. He satisfied all of that. He is the high priest who now intercedes 
on our behalf. He is the only one who could enter into the Holy of Holies. Um, His blood of the covenant has been spread on the mercy seat so that we have an open passport into the throne room of God. We could go through each of the ceremonial laws and actually show you how beautifully Christ fulfills them. What that means is those laws were provisional or for a time. And then once they were fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, we look back at them for edification and instruction. We trace them to the Lord Jesus Christ to encourage us in our own faith, but we don't continue to practice them in any binding way. The civil laws are not exactly the same. The civil laws, and I think appropriate in our own doctrinal standards. If you're new to this congregation, we hold to a confession of faith. It's called the Westminster Confession of Faith. There's a chapter actually on the law of God in the Westminster Confession of Faith. And one of the things that it says is that these civil laws, though not in the way in which they're presented, in the binding sense that it was for the nation of Israel, aren't immediately transferable to the context in which we're in. So like, for instance, we're about to look at slave laws. It's going to be kind of hard to appropriate slave laws for us today in North America because we don't have slaves, right? At least not anymore. Right? So that's the context in which we're in. It's going to be hard to fully appropriate those laws when you actually don't have the structure of that thing that's, that's in place that it's actually speaking to here. But what the, the confession notes, and I think appropriately so, says the principle underneath the laws, the instruction that's within the case laws, carries forward to the New Testament church. What does that mean? Let me just get, it's better giving an example than trying to understand that verbally right now. Uh, And I remember this from Sunday school. So all of you Sunday school teachers out there who actually are at some point in time having to like teach through a section like this, like it actually gets through to a few of us. Because I remember sitting in Sunday school and my teacher walking us through some of these laws. And one of the laws trying to teach us the point that I just made, the principle of the law or the general, what's called the general equity of the law is transferred into the New Testament would say, you know, in Deuteronomy chapter 22, there's a law. And the law is that you should have a fence around your roof. Now, do any of you have a fence around your roof? You're all breaking Deuteronomy 22. All right, none of us in here actually have fences around our roof. Why does it have fences around our roof in Deuteronomy 22? Because, well, they had ancient Near Eastern homes. It had flat roofs with a staircase on the outside. It's where you hung out with your fire pit and roasted your s'mores at night. I mean, that's where you went in the ancient Near East. It was essentially your patio. So if you are hanging out on your roof and your neighbor comes over and you didn't put up a fence in order to protect them and their two-year-old child, God forbid, runs off the roof, that's on you. You didn't love your neighbor well By protecting their well-being, you are guilty of their blood guilt. But by putting up a fence, if that neighbor's child actually climbs over that fence and jumps out, that is not on you. Assuming it's according to Williamson County downtown code, of course. Um, The right height and the right distance, all all those sort of things. So assuming all of that's in place. That's a great example. Well... How does that translate for you and me? Well, all you pool owners out there, I hope you have a fence around your pool. Why? Because that little neighborhood neighborhood child who doesn't know how to swim may decide to make a jaunt through your backyard 
and end up in your pool. And the last thing we want to happen is that they would drown. And it would be for the well-being and the care of your neighbor to have a fence up around that pool in order to care for the protection of the life which is around you. It's an appropriate principle embedded in Deuteronomy 22 that carries forward the general equity of the law. Okay, Helps us come to realization. Like, Here's how the law can instruct us on how we should think about the practice of our own private property. Now, do you see that connection, the general equity, the principle that comes through? The civil law is, is like that. So when we look at this particular text, we are actually, most of this text, apart from the altars, is in the civil arena. It's in the, the, the going-ons of real life, and it's in how laws and punishments should be enacted. And what you see is that the Lord gets right into uh, the depth of the situations, right? Because these laws are not, thou shalt not steal, right? That's what's like, okay, I got it. That's really clear. I don't have to you know, think through all the circumstances of that. That's an absolute standard. But when you read something like, when a man sells his daughter, notice the language when. It's a certain situation, right? If a man steals an ox, it's a certain situation. We're in a certain circumstance. Here's what you do. In that circumstance. Now, I think it's really important to hear this, especially when we come to slavery, especially when we come to the subject of slavery. In these circumstances, the Bible is not in any way clearly commending these actions, nor is it directly condemning these actions. It's really important just to hear that. That's not the purpose of the book of the law. The book of the law is not manifesto on, we don't like these things. You know, don't do these things. Here's the reason why you shouldn't do them. That's not the purpose of the book of the law. The purpose of the book of the law is to say, people are going to do a lot of dumb things. Here is how you handle them when they do. That's what the book of the law does. You know, like sometimes when, you know, training uh, children, you know, we'll say things like, well, you know, uh, you know, if, if little Johnny, I don't think he'll ever steal anything, but um, if little Johnny would ever stole, here's how we would want to handle it. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, you sort of say mom and dad sort of go like, don't be so sure about little Johnny, right? Little Johnny has a sinful heart. He may indeed do those things. And so you see the context of that playing its way out. We're in the midst of real life. We're not in the midst of ideals. And that's part of what these situations are meant to uncover. Now, part of the reason we know that these are provisional is even just the way that they are transmitted and the way that they're written. Um, the Ten Commandments were written in stone, weren't they? <laughs> these are described later in the book of Exodus as written by the pen of Moses on parchment. Now, why is that important? Well, it's meant to say it's for now. It's for these circumstances. It's for these particular situations. And we all have to rewrite these. Reimagine these. Reapply these. So, for instance, not every circumstance that could ever happen with an ox goring a person takes place in this, in, this, in this book of the covenant. But it gives us enough case studies where we can make a judgment about the right path to go. There's also many laws in here that would apply to us that don't apply to them. Like, for instance, I mean, we live in Nashville, and there are absolutely no copyright laws regarding mp3 music production or 
proliferation of those files via the internet through appropriate sourcing so that it doesn't get stolen or, or manipulated in any way. And if, and if we were talking to Moses, Moses would be like, MP, MP, what, what? What are you talking about here, right? And I mean, as I was writing this part yesterday, a, a plane flew over and I thought, yep, there's no air traffic laws in the book of the covenant. There's, there's none. It never occurred to them to have air travel. Why? Because they're situational. They're circumstantial. And the context has changed. We live in a completely different time. But having air traffic laws so that planes don't run in together is probably a pretty good use of the Ten Commandments and the preserving of loving your neighbor as yourself. Probably a pretty good idea. Right. So each of these things is how we need to understand what's taking place here. And it helps us sort of richly understand why it is and what it is that the Lord is trying to accomplish in the specificity of these laws. Now, with that sort of as an introduction, let's, th- let's think of the slave laws that are here. Okay, We're going to focus primarily on those first 11 verses. And I, I just want to note something I think is a really interesting observation uh, in, in the book of the covenant. Is that it starts in the loving your neighbor as yourself. We've got to start talking about slaves. It starts in that way. Why does it start with slavery? Right? There would be other places that, that you could start. Well, it's probably the place where the people of Israel needed the most instruction. Where do they come from? They're slaves. For the last 400 years, generationally, they've been slaves. And they have been slaves by... A pagan nation that was harsh, violent, and self-serving in their slavery. We've got multiple examples of that throughout the beginning of the, from the book of Exodus. From the beginning, including beating slaves until they're dead, taking straw from them in order to make bricks. There's all kinds of manipulative, harsh, and violent activity that goes on with regards to the slavery that the people of Israel are accustomed to. Now, as the Lord comes to the subject of slavery, he wants to reorder and he wants to reshape the whole institution of slavery in and around the commitments of the Ten Commandments. He's going to help us think about it in a way that's completely different from the way that they've experienced it otherwise. Now, before we hit that, I feel like I'm dying the death of a thousand qualifications here. Before we hit that, I just have to speak to the objector who's out there, the person who says, now, yeah, that's all fine and well and good. Why does he not do away with slavery? Right? Did you not have that thought? So we're going through. Why didn't he just go like, hey, slavery, don't do it. Why, why did, you know, that would have been easy. It would have been a lot shorter reading today if, if we had done that. Here's one of the things I want to say to you. That's a very fair question, and it is, it is voiced from a particular cultural vantage point with very strong cultural assumptions behind that vantage point. Okay? Now, it would take a lecture in and of itself to tell you all of what I mean by those few words. I'm not going to get into all the details of this, but let me, just, let me just note a few of these things, and then we'll see them as we go through the laws briefly. We tend to think in things like, oh, well, I mean, they could, instead of having slavery when somebody does something wrong, rather than them getting sold into slavery, they could have prisons, a, a, a prison system. Well, they didn't. They didn't have a prison system. When someone got in significant debt and had no way of paying it back, 
through their monetary resources and means, they could have had a bankruptcy court. They didn't have a bankruptcy court. You have a bankruptcy court. That just bye-bye debt, right? It, go, it goes away. They didn't have that mechanism, okay? They didn't have insurance agents that could just wave magic wands or put in claims or things like that. The structure in which we live from for those things to happen are incredibly different than the ancient Near East. And slavery in the ancient Near East had such a variety of dizzying arrangements and varying uses and purposes that some of those uses and purposes were to actually do justice, to do right. That's why slavery existed. And then others, not so much. There was a mix of both positive and negative that came out of the institution of slavery. And especially what we see here in the biblical model is we see that the Bible is reordering it and reshaping it by love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. When we think about this institution, it wants it reshaped by those realities. Now, part of why that's really important is because for, for us, when we hear slavery, we can't help but hear or can't help but imagine you know, massive plantation owners and African slaves and the transatlantic slave trade. That's immediately what jumps into our minds. And I don't fault anybody for that. It's what jumps into my own mind. It's a part of the significant history of where it is that we come from. It would be violence to the text to take that history and apply it back on what the text is saying right here. It doesn't have any of that in view. None of that's at work. And so very interestingly, we can have a reaction to something and be repelled against something because we don't actually know what they're talking about. We've misunderstood what they're even referencing. In fact, when you look in here that man-stealing is completely rejected in the Scripture, which we know took place in the transatlantic slave trade, which means it is outside the pale of what the Bible would even allow as permissible for the people of Israel, right? And there's many other instances that we can give with regards to that. And also, it's burdened by the subject of racism so deeply in our country, isn't it? Because it was a particular ethnic group that was enslaved in North America. And so immediately when we talk about slaves, we get nervous about ethnic relations. Well, just notice verse tw- verse, uh, Exodus 21, verse 2. When you buy a Hebrew slave, just pause. Not a foreigner. Just, just but when you buy a citizen of Middle Tennessee, it looks like you, talks like you, has the same language, comes from the same, all of those things. That's what it's saying. This is from within the family, so to speak. It's got something else entirely in view. And it's really important for us to just see that the Scripture is speaking to something different here so that we can learn what it is trying to communicate to us and why these case laws are so important. Okay, when we look at these case laws, there are four things I think that we can glean from the the instruction on slavery that apply to each of the laws, that really do apply to each of the laws. And the first is this, that slavery, as the Bible is speaking of it, that's very important, as the Bible is communicating in here in the case laws, is pairing the institution of slavery with advancement or development of the person who is the slave under the master. 
Now, where do we actually see that? Well, I think very unusually, we tend to think of slavery as oppression. When, this, when the Bible speaks of slavery in, in Exodus 21, it's never intended oppressively, but is actually intended in the midst of the good of the individual. Notice one of the most disturbing case laws that we read, verse 7. When a man sells his daughter as a slave. <laughs> Did any of you like stumble over that when we read through that? We kind of, I mean, we read that and we think, what ogre of a father, you know, would do, would do that very, very thing? Well, again, let's get in the ancient Near East. It was regularly the issue among families that they could not provide for their children. Because of where it is they were located, because of famine and because of drought. To be connected to a wealthy, rich owner. And especially to place notice your most vulnerable among your children. What's noticed here is the daughter. In the care of a man who could give her skill, could clothe her, could feed her, could potentially give her a pathway into marriage which was the path for an ancient Near Eastern woman to begin to gain the kind of footing and stability and security that was needed, a father within the family of people who are following Yahweh, within people of Cornerstone, you have a child that you can't take care of and you say to another family in Cornerstone, we give her to you to take care of. We'd love to see her, talk with her, chat with her, continue. Absolutely. And, but can your resource, can you raise her up, use her, serve within your farm, help her learn a skill, grow up, maybe as you saw in here, marry one of your sons, if the son marries her, he says, right? These laws are put in place here not for the purposes of going, we don't like this daughter, we're really greedy, we want a lot of money. Within the context of actually the way in which this is given, it's meant for the care and the protection of the daughter. Now, we would have never seen that. Notice, there are other spheres in which we think that way a little bit. Like, for instance, when you sign up for the army, right? And the army says, give me seven years of your life, right? And we will pay you, clothe you, feed you, train you give you health care, and at the end of seven years, you're free. Or you can re-enlist. You're free to make a decision, but you're at a better place than you were when you began. It's funny how that doesn't bother us at quite the same level because we probably haven't paired it with Exodus 21. We haven't thought of it in not a perfect parallel, but a comparative parallel to what it is that's talking here. So you can see that sometimes slavery is actually enacted as a means or a way in which one can actually advance and develop and become at a better footing and place in life. Secondly, I want you to see, sometimes slavery is connected to protection. It's protection. Now, again, how ironic is that? When we think of slavery, we think of exploitation, right? We think of the exact opposite. But how often are these rules connected with protection and care? And I want to, again, just notice specifically the differences of the laws between men and women that were here in the text. A daughter who is sold into slavery, do you notice that if the master wants to give her up, notice what he can't do. He can't sell her to a foreigner. She can't go outside the covenant of faith. She can't go outside the covenant of community. The father is the first one who gets the chance to redeem her, okay, to bring her back. If she is going to be released, he owes her that which he promised to her, right? 
protection and care being given. Um, the, all of these laws with regards to slavery and circumstances are here meant that she, he's got to actually provide for her. Notice that if she becomes the wife of his son, what does she then become? A daughter. That means she's no longer a slave. She owes him nothing. She immediately is welcomed into the family. If that son, boneheaded as he may be, marries another woman, and she's the second wife now in the midst of things, he still must give to her all the food, all the clothing, all the housing, and all the marital rights that she deserves as a wife. Now, when you read that, you think to yourself, man, that's kind of stark and limited. That was radical in the ancient Near East. This was an incredibly protective, beneficial, focused on care, a structure that the Lord is seeking to put in place for those who may be, in this context, the most vulnerable among God's people. Slavery is connected to advancement and development. Slavery is connected to protection. But notice slavery is connected to justice. We already alluded to this just a little bit. In Exodus 22, in verse 1, we're told that if a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it. Okay, we stole a sheep or an ox. We kill it. We eat it. We have an incredible, you know, what would that be? Like Thanksgiving? Yeah, we have a Thanksgiving meal, something like that. An incredible meal. And then it's come to find out that we stole it. We're going to repay. We've got to pay the price of that and more. Okay? If he doesn't have the ability to repay, you know, he's low on cash, he has to sell himself into slavery into being a servant. Why? There isn't bankruptcy court. He must work off that which he stole. That's the principle of equity that's here in the text of Scripture. It's exactly what my dad would say when he would scare us. We'd go out to eat and we'd finish a great meal, right? And he'd say, oh no, I forgot my wallet at home. And we'd go, what are we going to do? And he goes, well, you're going to wash dishes what you're going to do. You're going to work to pay for the meal. It's exactly the same principle here. Is that this man wasn't immediately, it actually gave him a context in which he could be at, get out from under the debt. And learn, even in the context of a master, to become a responsible individual. Now we could just lock him away and do nothing with him. But the structure of the biblical narrative is to actually enroll us into equity and justice. That's the goal of it, because God's own character is striving in just that way. So do you see how slavery is being used in advancement? It's using in protection. It's using for restitution, the ability to, to create justice. But, but fourthly and finally, slavery is connected to freedom. Now, that's the most ironic. <laughs> that's the most ironic of them all, because it's the opposite of freedom. But, but did you notice how the commands of the book of the law began in Exodus 21. Do you notice that first law in, in Exodus 21 uh, where it's speaking of slaves? It says, Now there are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh, he shall go free for nothing. The first law is not about, here's a great economic plan for you to exploit slaves for the rest of their lives. No, the first statement on the laws of slavery is about how they get free. 
The people of Israel had been slaves for hundreds of years in Egypt. Born a slave, lived a slave, died a slave. The goal of slavery in any context within the Hebrew culture and within Israel as a nation was unto freedom, toward freedom. Moving in the direction where freedom can be found. It's defined and it's delimited. That is unless, and here's what's somewhat ironic in the text, unless the slave wants to stay. Now, some of you are thinking to yourself, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, you said some outlandish and crazy things today. But now you're telling me that there might be the possibility of slaves wanting to stay. No, I'm, I'm telling you the Bible says that, that there might be a context in which slaves would want to stay, like in, like in verse 5. But if the, if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go free. Then his master will, shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. Now notice this. In this context, the focus of a slave might be that his or her life is so good with their master, and the lines have fallen in such pleasant places that they decide for the rest of their life, They'd like to be a slave to that master. That's really different than the way that you and I think. That's really uphill plotting for a people whose chief and leading virtue is this notion of freedom. But the Bible has this strong notion of service and duty from love. In fact, we might trace that out even to the New Testament and find that our master, the Lord Jesus Christ, out of love for us, bondaged people, enslaved to sin, would be made like us in every way to come and serve us unto our freedom. We might actually begin to see that the whole arc of Scripture is in many ways pulling us to a Savior who is laboring for our freedom by laying aside all of His privileges and freedoms, laying aside all of His comforts at the throne room of grace in order to be our servant. Have this mind which is yours in Christ Jesus, who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself laying his life down for his people. We see the Lord Jesus Christ becoming our master, the greatest of servants and saviors, so that we could be freed from our bondage. Now here's what's remarkable about that, is once we are freed from our bondage, you know what you and I actually become when the Spirit of the Lord is at work in us in the power of the gospel? We as sons and daughters of the King, you know what we start to freely do? Enslave ourselves to Master Jesus. Enslave ourselves freely to Master Jesus. You know what I see this morning? I see a lot of people who need awes in their ears with earrings that have to do that. I listen and serve only Master Jesus. He, he, he was going to just maybe let me go free ever. I said, no, i got to be under the supervision, the care, and the love, and the protection, and the freedom that's found under Master Jesus. That's where, I, that's where my good life is found, is right there. 
I believe this is exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ is actually teaching us when we go to the New Testament. And we understand in Matthew chapter 5, he actually uses the language here of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You know, we read that a little bit earlier. We'll be teasing that out a little further. But Jesus quotes it, of course, in Matthew chapter 5. And when he he does, and when he quotes it in in Matthew chapter 5, he acknowledges and, and recognizes that there's, there, there's more to it than just the principle of, of law that, that's there. There's the principle of, of mercy. He says, if you've really understood the gospel now, you'll see that you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and that's right. It's exactly justice in the book of the covenant, which I don't think means literally an eye or literally a tooth, but to pay for it, to pay for it, to make restitution for it. And Jesus actually says, but I tell you, if someone slaps you on the cheek, turn the other also. And we say to ourselves, no way, that's, that's not exactly tit for tat. That, that's not exactly what the book of the covenant is saying. Well, well, you as a Christian know that the tit for tat's already been fulfilled. The fullness has already been accomplished in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what happens is, because he has shown you mercy... In the midst of injustice and even hurts being done to you, you as an individual can actually say, instead of throwing the book of the law at you, instead of milking this circumstance for everything that I can get out of it, I'm going to do the other justice-satisfying thing. As one who's received mercy, and as one who did not have all his sins held against him, And as one who had someone else pay them on his behalf, and as someone who is served by a benevolent master who takes care of all of his needs, most importantly the eternal ones, and who has gone to prepare a place for me so that I will dwell with him forever in eternity, what I will say to you, offender of me, I forgive you. I forgive you. And when we say, I forgive you, in that moment, beautiful mercy and justice come together. Because the I forgive you means this. It means though I could hold this over your hand and get all that I possibly could from you from it, I will receive the blow and let you walk free. And I don't know about you, but that sounds a lot like the cross of Jesus Christ. One who took the blow so that you and me can go free. And live under the joy of a benevolent master. Who always has our advancement in view. Our growth and sanctification. Who always has our protection and care in view. Who always has our security in view. Who always has our ultimate freedom in view. Do you see how the gospel changes this? Do you see how the book of the covenant and laws about slaves can all of a sudden be good news? When the Lord Jesus Christ, the master, became a slave for you and me. In order that we might become children of God. Who become willing slaves of our master Jesus. By God's grace, that will happen to each and every heart in this room. And we will serve him faithfully as those who've been served. Father in heaven, help us to hear this. Help us to believe it. Help us to follow it. Come by your spirit and teach us. 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.